say. Amen. You may be seated. So today we uh, return to our sermon series in Ephesians, and so I, I know it's very possible that depending upon when you began to worship with us, you may be thinking, wait a minute, when were we ever in an Ephesians sermon series? Uh, but we were, and we are, uh, going back to uh, before uh, the season of Advent and before um, I was doing some traveling, and so uh, please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, looking at verses 17 to 24. And uh, let me remind us kind of where we've been and where we are in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That like, like many of Paul's letters, that Ephesians uh, can be outlined you know, fairly neatly in, into two halves. The first half, chapters 1, 2, and 3, where Paul you know, lays out a, 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 a rich foundation of, of deep and rich theology about all that God has, has done in us and for us in Christ. And then the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul then rolls out the, the crucial applications and implications that, that flow out of the, the rich theological foundation that he laid earlier in, in the book. And so in chapter 1, we learn about God's sovereignty in, in choosing and electing us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And that in love he predestined us to be to adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, we were reminded that before God made us alive together with Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But praise God that by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of our works so that no one may boast. Then the second half of, of chapter 2 going into chapter 3 that we're reminded that we've not only been reconciled to God, not only been united uh, to Christ by faith, but we've also been united to one another in God's one new household, into a holy temple in the Lord. That, that in Christ we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That that is, we're now a new people, a new society, part of a new kingdom. We are the church. And so in Ephesians, in the second half of this letter, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see, especially here in chapter 4, that Paul begins to develop two main themes or two main characteristics that are to be true of God's people, that are to be true of, of the church. We saw the first in the first half of Ephesians 4, that earlier in Ephesians 4, we saw that the church is to be unified, that we are one new people, one new family, the church and that God has gifted the church with those who are called to preach and teach God's word for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As Paul puts it, that we would no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine, now today we begin looking at the second half of Ephesians 4 and we see that Paul turns to a, to a second theme or a second characteristic that is to be true of the church. And that is that we are to not only be unified and not only are we to, to grow up together into maturity in Christ, but they're also to be holy. That we are to be new people who live new lives that are distinct and set apart from the world. Now, in, in next Sunday's passage, Paul is going to get into very specific applications, 
very specific commands. But before he does that, in our passage today, he's going to give us the theological foundation for living a holy life. And that is the truth that we are no longer who we once were. That we're now new creations in Christ, and therefore that we can and we should and we must live differently. You see, you, dear Christian, have a new status in Christ. You have a new identity in Christ. That we are God's new people, therefore we must live new lives, new lifestyles, with new priorities, new standards of conduct, new ways of thinking about every area of our lives. So Paul's going to remind us of who we were. He's going to remind us of who we are now. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at this passage under two headings. Who we were. Paul reminds us of who we were before God saved us by his grace in Christ. Who we were. And Paul makes it very clear. That that's now not who we are now. So we're going to look at who we were and who we are now. And and Paul sets up really this this, um, contrast of of things that we need to put off because that's that's who we were and things we need to put on because of who we are now, of, of what we are to leave behind and what we are to press on towards. So first, who we were. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. And so this is Paul's way of of speaking emphatically with the authority of Christ as an apostle, representing Christ with his full authority. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And notice that word walk. We've seen it before earlier in, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so Pastor Ian Hamilton says this about the word walk. The word walk is not merely a synonym for live. I mean, it is, but it's more than that. It highlights the deliberate, step-by-step character of our lifestyle choices. The Christian has a distinctive walk. That is a distinctive, deliberate, thought-through pattern of life. Okay, so look back at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, and you may remember from our other, earlier study of Ephesians that, that, that the Ephesian church was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, of Jews and non-Jews. 
who've all been brought together, now reconciled to God, united with Christ, united to one another in this new household, in this new family, in this new church. But they were mostly, they were mostly former Gentiles who now had been saved. And now they're fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God. And so when you look at verse 17, realize that Paul's point to his original audience is that you are no longer who you once were. That many of you were Gentiles, but no longer walk in the way the Gentiles do. That you now have a new status, a new calling, a new identity. And so Paul's reminding them, that's who you were, but now that's not who you are now. And so you are, to never, you are to never go back to that old way of life, that old way of walking, that old way of thinking. Rather, you are to now live out who you are in Christ. And I've already mentioned, alluded to Ephesians 4 verse 1, but let's look, look back at it. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so there, in Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul's really highlighting, you know, what who we are now, who they are now, and, and what they're called, the life, the walk they're called to, to pursue and to press into. Well, in our passage, if you look again at verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's more so calling them away from who they were. And it really even issuing a warning. You know, don't, don't find yourself going back there. There's nothing for you there any longer. Okay, so, so what is it that Paul is calling them and calling us to leave behind, to turn away from, to never return back to? Well, we can think of it in three ways. First, he's calling us to leave behind our old life marked by futility in our thinking. Marked by futility in our thinking. Look at verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. See, simply put, how you think impacts the way you live. You know, how you think determines how you live. You know, my guess is that most of us have heard the saying, you, you are what you eat. Well, Paul essentially says, you know, you are what you think. More specifically, what you think about God. What you think about God sets the trajectory of your life. And what you think about God, if what you think about God is marked by futility, then we're going to be darkened in our understanding of who God is, of who we are, of how we ought to live life in God's world. That if our lives are marked by futility of thinking and our, and our understanding is darkened, then you know, the world will be, will be a closed book to us. It won't make sense. Everything will be out of place. All our priorities will be out of whack. They'll all be misplaced. You know, all of the price tags that we assign to things, the values that we assign to things and to relationships, priorities out in the world, all those price tags are going to be switched. That the, we're, we're going to value things that really have no value. And we're not going to value the things which we ought to prize the most. G.K. Chesterton, um, in a short story he wrote called The Oracle of the Dog, um, there's a hero in this story, um, this detective priest, uh, Father Brown, and, and he, he says this, the, the character says this, the first effects of not believing in God is that you lose your common sense 
and can't see things as they are. In many ways, that's Paul's point. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They can't see things as they are. I mean, think about it. Think, think back to the Garden of Eden. Think back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And think back to, to what, they, what they immediately thought after that first sin. Right? After they first sinned, once their thinking was darkened by sin, what did they think about? Their first thought was to hide from God. Now, think about how futile and foolish that was. I mean, first, how can one hide from the omniscient and sovereign creator of the universe? Second, think about how fast that, that first sin immediately darkened their understanding and twisted their thinking in such a way to the point that they actually believed that it was good for them to attempt to hide and, and run away from the good and gracious God, the God the, their, their creator, the one who had given them life and breath and all things. Pastor Ian Hamilton says, sin darkens our understanding in every way. God is an enigma to us. He becomes someone to hide from. God's world is a closed book to us. We don't know why it is there and what it is for. We cannot understand ourselves. You know, many of you know that I grew up in an unbelieving home, and it wasn't until I was a young adult that I became a Christian. And I'll tell you, friends, I distinctly remember being amazed at how much, how much sense God's word made of, of the world and of my own life and my own heart. Whenever I first became a Christian, I began to hear God's word read to me and taught to me and preached to me in a church much like this one. See, friends, remember, dear Christian, this, this is how you once lived. That's what Paul's saying. Remember, this is who you once were. This is how you once lived, but, but this is not who you are now. You must no longer live the way you once did. And, you know, why would you ever go back to that old way of thinking? That darkened way of thinking, that darkened understanding, marked by futility. Why would you ever go back there? The second thing he says about what we are to leave behind is our old life, marked by alienation from God due to our hard hearts. Look at verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. You see, here Paul makes it clear that before we became Christians, that we were personally culpable for our alienation from the life of God because of our ignorance. Because of our hard hearts, because of our hearts of stone and our refusal to see the abundance of God's truth, the evidence of God and his truth all around us. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So do you see Paul's point in Romans 1 in our Ephesians 4 passage? That the unbeliever's ignorance of God is not because merely of a lack of education or a lack of opportunity. You know, as a, as a young adult, my ignorance of God and the things of God and alienation from God was not merely due to a lack of education or lack of opportunity. It was due to, to the settled determination to harden my heart to the abundance of evidence for God's existence and goodness and truth that was all around me. And this leads to the final point that Paul makes in this passage about who we were before God saved us. He says we must turn away from and not go back to our old life marked by spiraling ungodliness. Look at verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You see, Ephesians 4 verses 17 to 19 is a portrait of what theologians refer to as total depravity. Total depravity refers to the way that sin permeates and negatively impacts and, and ruins and mars and twists and distorts you know, every area of one's life. Now, now this doesn't mean that, that every unbeliever is as bad as they possibly could be. And praise God that's the case. You know, even for those of us here in this room, that it, this doesn't mean that every one of us were as bad as we possibly could have been before God saved us by his grace in Christ. In, in fact, most non-Christians I know have at least somewhat of a veneer of decency and decorum and, and morality due to God's common grace, to God's gracious restraining influence in their lives and in the world. Okay, but, but look again at verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do you see this, this downward spiral? See, the point that Paul's making is that sin always spirals downward. It never makes things better. It never takes us where we want to go. And sin is never satisfied. We can never give it enough. We think, I'll just give it a little. I'll just give in a little. It's never satisfied. And sin never satisfies us. It's never enough. See, sin always takes us deeper. And our hardened, callous hearts become harder and harder. And we become more and more desensitized to our sin. We become, the more we sin, it becomes easier to sin. It becomes easier to justify. It becomes easier to just turn a blind eye at it, to wink at it, to pretend it's really not a big deal. We become desensitized to our own sin and to what it does to ourselves. We become desensitized to what, to what it does, what it is doing to those around us. You see, sin always says, just one more. Just one more time. This is the last time. This, no, no, this really is the last time. It's okay, this can be the last time. Sin always says, just one more. Just one more drink, just one more click, just one more view, just one more time. You see, sin promises joy and satisfaction, fulfillment. It promises life. But all it ever delivers is futility, ruin, 
death, heartache. Sin's never satisfied, and sin never satisfies. It's never worth it. Never delivers on the promises. It always takes far more than you expected to pay. So for those of you who are not yet in Christ, aren't you tired of this life? Aren't you tired of this? It's not going to change. Come to Christ. Christ's offer in John 10, 10 is, he says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life to the full. Jesus, his invitation in John 14, 6 is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, but you can come to me, trust in me. That's the invitation, to turn from your sin. Confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Acknowledge to God that, that, that all of those things that you've been running to for life never give you life. Cry out to him for the forgiveness that's only found in Christ, and he will forgive you. His atoning death on the cross is sufficient. It is sufficient to wash away your sin, to remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And if you come to Christ, he will, he will, not, he will not merely wash you clean and, and put you, set you back to, to neutral, but he will actually credit you with his righteous life, that he'll clothe you in his robes of righteousness. And that his resurrection becomes your resurrection. That you are now, you'll be born again. A new creation in Christ. Given a new heart. With the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. To come to Christ. And then for those of us who are Christians. Realize what Paul is describing in verses 17 to 19. This is who you once were. But God has saved you by his grace in Christ. Why would you ever go back to that old life? I mean, do you not know who you are? Do you not know that old life has nothing to offer you? There's nothing to offer us. Why would we ever go back to it? And you see, dear Christians, as we, as we realize this, our heart should break all the more for those that we know who are outside of Christ. And it should motivate us to be steadfast in our prayers for God to open their spiritual ears, to open their blind eyes, to soften their hearts. That we should be you know, ever more committed to, to not only to praying for them, but looking for ways to share the gospel with them, to share the truth of God's grace with them. And we should never ever give up on them, because we know who we once were. And we know that God's grace was able to save us, even sinners like us. And therefore, we never ever consider anyone to be a lost cause. We never consider anyone to be too far gone. We never give up. We never give up praying. We never give up sharing. We never give up inviting. But Paul says, first, that is who we were. And the second heading is who we are now. And he begins with saying, who we are now, now we learned Christ. And so look at verse 20. In verse 21. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay, so this, we, we don't see um, how emphatic Paul is in our English translation. But, but really what he's saying is, but for you, that's not the way you learned Christ. 
And then he says, assuming that you've heard about him. Assuming that you do know Christ. There's even a, a challenge here to evaluate one's own heart. To evaluate your, your profession of faith and to see, do you really know this Christ? And then notice in verse 21, that assuming that you have heard about him, about is not actually in the Greek text. That it's more literally, assuming that you have heard him. You've learned him. Not merely learning about him, but learning him. You see, becoming a Christian is not merely learning about Christ. I mean, we, there are things we need to know about Christ and learn about Christ. But it's so much more than merely learning about Christ. It, it's coming to know Christ. Personally, intimately. And not just know Christ, but to come to love him. To be loved by him. To trust him, to, to rest in him, and his finished work, and his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so looking again at verses 20 and 21, I mean, notice there's this, this, there's this language of learning and education. And so if you think about the, the analogy of what Paul's saying here, you learned Christ. See, Christ is the subject. And you, that you have heard him. Christ is also the teacher. And you were taught in him. I think we can even say that Christ was not just the subject, not just the teacher, but he's, he's the whole school. And so, so what does this mean for those of us who are in Christ? Well, if you're in Christ, it means you're now united to Christ by the person of the Holy Spirit. You're no longer who you once were. You're now in Christ. You're now in Christ, which means you're no longer in Adam. That's the contrast. You are now in Christ, no longer in Adam. See, Paul's about to talk about putting off the old self or putting off the old man. And that old man is referring to Adam. You see, by nature, we were once members of the family of which Adam was the original father. That he was the representative, the, the covenant head. And by nature, we were all in Adam. Which means that when Adam sinned in the garden, we fell in Adam. And we experience the consequences of Adam's sin and our own sin. However, whenever we come to know and love and trust and rest in Christ and the redemption that he's accomplished for us, all of those ties that once bound us to Adam, they're now cut. They're now completely severed. They're broken. We're no longer in Adam. We're now adopted into, into a new family with a new representative, a new covenant head, and our new covenant head is Christ. That Christ is the new Adam, the second Adam, the, the final Adam. And the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed, and now that we are in Christ, everything Christ did for us in his life, death, and resurrection has become ours. See, we're no longer who we once were. We now have a new family. We're part of a new kingdom, a new society. We have a new identity, a new status, a new life. There ought to be a new way of living. And the Paul's point is that because all of this is true, because we have learned Christ and that we are in Christ, we must have nothing to do with the way in which we used to walk. So now we have learned Christ. Now we're in Christ. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means several things are already true of us, and we need to know and understand and embrace and live in light of and impress all the more into that which is true of us now that we are in Christ. 
You know, simply put, we need to be who we are. And no longer have anything to do with who we once were. See, what Paul says next is that now, who we are, we are no longer our old self. Look at verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That was the former manner of life. You're now called to walk in a manner worthy of your new calling of who you are now. See, that's the old self. That's the old man. That was Adam. That was the old life in Adam. But that old self has been put away. It's dead, buried, gone. All of those bonds, all of those ties that bound us to Adam, they're now severed. They're now gone. It's not who we are now. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, in Christ, we're freed from sin's penalty. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Christ was condemned in our place on the cross. There is no more condemnation left for you, dear Christian. We're freed from sin's penalty. And if you look at Romans 6, 6, we're freed from sin's domineering and enslaving power so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's not who we are now. This is who we are now. It's important to remember, though, that we will not be freed from sin's very presence in this life. Therefore, we are called to fight against our sin, to wage war against our sin. As Puritan John Owen put it, to, to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And so the, the, Paul's point is that we can do that because we're no longer in Adam. We're no longer in prison to our sin. No longer enslaved to our sin. That's why we must not walk the way we once walked. So look again at verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. You see, we're to understand that our old self, or the old man, was crucified with Christ. It's dead, buried, gone. It belongs to our former manner of life, or, or as you know, John Stott put it, that for the Christian, the Christian lives life in, in two volumes. Volume one is who we once were. But now that we're in Christ, volume one is closed. It's closed, it's put away, never to be reopened again. The Christian now lives in volume two. So why would we ever go back to volume one again? It's not who we are. And so once we know, believe, trust, embrace these truths, then we can fight against our sin well, and we can continually look to, to put our sin to death day by day. And so another analogy from, or illustration from John Stott was to learn Christ is to grasp the new creation which he has made possible and the entirely new life which results from it. It is nothing less than putting off our old humanity like a rotten garment and putting on like clean clothing the new humanity recreated in God's image. And that brings us to this, the last point that Paul makes about who we are now in Christ, that we are now new creations. We're now new creations. Look at verse 23 and 24. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
That if you're in Christ, the old self has been put off. The new self has been put on. However, this means so much more than, than that you are merely a, a better version of your old self. You see, I fear that many Christians believe that. That, that, that we think becoming a Christian is, is, is a much smaller deal than it really is. I worry that so many of us think that becoming a Christian is just a little bit of self-improvement. That is turning over a new leaf. That we're going to decide, okay, you know, I'm going to stop doing a few unhelpful things and bad habits. And I'm going to take up some new helpful habits and I'll, I'll come to church a little more often. Do you not see what Paul's saying? That becoming a Christian is, it's no small thing to become a Christian. It's a big deal. That it is, it's so much more radical it's so much more extreme, and it's so much more wonderful than merely turning over a new leaf. You see, in Christ's resurrection, he became the first new man of God's new creation. And now that we are in Christ, united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, our ties to the old Adam, they're broken. The old man is put off, and through our union with Christ, the new Adam, we also put on the new man. So look again at verse 23 and 24. And notice it says we're created after the likeness of God. Do you see that? In Christ, we're created or recreated after the likeness of God. So we're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. You know, we were originally made in God's image, image bearers of God who were marred and broken and twisted by the fall, by our own sin. But now we are recreated after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, as one pastor put it, it is no small thing to become a Christian. It's not merely turning over a new leaf. It's being born again. It's becoming a, a new creation in Christ. It's not mere improvement. It's not mere self-improvement. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it in Mere Christianity. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Right? It's that radical, it's that extreme, it, it's that wonderful, it's that big of a deal. And now, in, in thinking about how, how to end a sermon like this, I know that, that, some, that some in a room this size will hear this sermon and you say maybe something like this, but Richard, if I'm on, I hear you and I see, I see what the text says and I want to follow Christ, I want to follow Christ wholeheartedly, I want to live as becomes a follower of Christ but if I'm honest, I see so very much of the old man. I see so very much of the old self and very little of the new self. And I was wrestling with how, how to end such a, such a sermon. And in, in one of my commentaries, it's probably the, it's the thickest and the most technical of the commentaries, probably the driest commentary I'm using for this sermon series. And so I was surprised to find at the end of this section, there was an addendum. And the commentator had kind of titled it something like pastoral and devotional comment or pastoral and devotional addendum. 
And it really ministered to my heart this past week as I was studying for this sermon. And so I want to read this quote to you. It's a long quote, but my prayer is that it will minister to your soul as well. This is from seminary professor S.M. Baugh. He says, In the text we have just seen, believers have shed the old man and donned the new because it's a work of God. This death of the old man was done in Christ on the cross, and we were raised anew with Christ. Yet for some believers, this is precisely the place where problems arise. We do not see this change itself in us. And some people with sensitive consciences see nothing but what appears to be the old man battling every halting step forward in the Christian life and none of the evidence that we are in fact new creatures in Christ. What do you do now? Spiritual disciplines? Tried and true steps to a happy and victorious life? Positive thinking? Hypnotism? The place to start for the biblical answer is in our passage. The fact is, just as justification is by faith alone, the same faith in Christ's finished work is also the essential means for our growth and sanctification and the new life of holiness. We believe that we have donned the new man, not because we see it, but because the Bible teaches it, and we believe God and his word to be true. We consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, an act of faith, because it is the foundational truth for a believer in Christ. We have been set free. Now we walk in that freedom by faith. Sanctification is by faith. We will never see enough good fruit to satisfy our conscience if we look to that fruit as the source of our hope. If you have truly entrusted yourself to Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. You are light. Now walk as children of the light by faith. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths. Lord, our prayer is that you would write them upon our hearts. And may, may our confidence not be in, in our track record in how we're doing or in our love for you because our love for you is often frail, fickle, and even faltering. But may our confidence and our sure and certain hope be in your love for us, which is always steadfast, always faithful, always preserving. It's a love that will never let us go. And it's a love that will bring all of God's people all of the way home. And we are so thankful for your amazing grace that is at work in our lives. Lord, help us. Help us to no longer walk in the way that we once did. And may we press into and may we pursue and be who we are now in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.